excuse me, before we look at uh, chapter 3, I want you to look back to chapter 2, the last verse, chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth, some translations say, be silent. Keep silent before Him. This is, this is a silence here, as we ended chapter 2 last week. This is a silence of reverent awe. It's a worshipful awe of God, a respectful awe of God. A silence that lets you know that you are in the presence of the eternal God. A silence brought on by humility and, and brokenness. A, a silence that comes from the recognition of sinfulness a silence of total submission to the will of God. That's how chapter 2 ended. Keep that in mind. The Lord is in His holy temple. He is presiding over all. He's ruling and reigning over all past, present, future. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him, says Habakkuk. Now, in chapter 3, we see a change in Habakkuk. There's a, there's a change happening in Habakkuk. There's a lot of difference in Habakkuk now in chapter 3 than there was when we began. Habakkuk began in chapter 1 by questioning God, didn't he? Remember that? Uh, he says in chapter 1 verse 3, Why do you make me see or make me look at iniquity? Why do you tolerate wrong? Then he says in verse 13, Why do you idly look at traitors? Why are you silent He says, while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. And then in verse 17, is he to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? (coughs) There's several times there that Habakkuk questions God. Now, uh, he's not disrespectful. Some of us were probably taught, don't ever do that toward God, right? But if we're honest... We didn't obey that, right? We've done that toward God. What in the world is going on? Why, God? He's not being disrespectful. He has a deep burden. Listen, and he's bringing it to God. Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3, he shows a change in Habakkuk. Chapter 3 is an example of prayer. You know where Habakkuk's at, right? You know what's going on, how he's viewing things, what's going on. And he, he comes to God, and now in chapter 3 there's a prayer. It's an example for us. Habakkuk's attitude in this prayer is simply this. God, I don't understand everything. I don't understand why you let your people go headlong into sin. I don't understand why you're bringing these wicked, vile Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge them. I, I don't understand why, uh, why, why you're going to wait to judge them, the Babylonians, after that. They could be judged now, matter of fact, God. They're just wicked, vile people. You could just do that to them now, but you're going to wait, let them come, punish your people, and then you're going to punish them. At this point, you're, you're, you should be in the boat with the back. You're kind of going, I just don't understand. But there's one thing I know. Habakkuk's changed in chapter 3. There's one thing I know, God. You 
You are the God that is righteous. You are the God that is eternal. You are the God that never makes a mistake. You're the God that hates sin. You're the God that never does anything wrong. And I'll trust that and I will praise you because of that. What's well, a big change, right? Chapter 3 is the prayer of a believer in which he sees God... Uh, well, let me back up here. Chapter 3 is a prayer of a believer, Habakkuk, in which we see God move him from fear to faith. Remember, he, he's terrified, right? And in chapter 3 we see this drastic change in Habakkuk. He moves from fear to faith. So if you're looking at your handout, the main idea is... It, it, Again, it's a prayer. A prayer of trust in the sovereignty of God. That's what Habakkuk's doing here. A prayer of trust in the sovereignty of God. So look, look at verses 1 and 2. And we've outlined it this way. A plea for God to move. Simple. A plea for God to move. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigiona. Prayer... It's Habakkuk's response to all that he has learned from God. Remember, God's taught him some things, right? How does Habakkuk respond to what he's learned? He's praying. Habakkuk's response to this point has been that of being amazed, confused by God's plan for dealing with sin. Habakkuk gives us the proper response. He gives us an example. He lets us know that praying is a proper response to all that he's learned from God about what's going on. I remember one time reading an account of uh, some men who were together uh, meeting. And well, I'll go ahead. Sorry, for deacons. They were deacons, okay? Um, they were having a meeting, and whatever they were discussing, uh, it was it was a tough situation, and they couldn't come to resolution. And there was just a lot of back and forth, back and forth. And finally, one deacon says, "Why don't we pray?" And one deacon said, "Good Lord, has it come to that?" Hey, don't laugh. That's us a lot of times, right? Habakkuk responds. Here's what I've learned. Here's what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray to my God. And you have this strange word there, Shigioneth. Some of you probably hung up on that word. You've been reading ahead. You're probably trying to figure, what in the world is that? And you've missed the point of verse 1. Uh, But for those of you who are curious, that word's found one other time in the Bible. Psalm chapter 7, verse 1. Some commentators believe that it refers to a type of song. Others say it's a musical instrument or a type of a song. Outside of that, I have no idea. The point here is what? Habakkuk is praying. Let's stop and make a, a, a quick application here. I went to a conference Friday and yesterday at the seminary on prayer. I'm thinking, I'm a pastor, man. I should go to a conference on prayer. I'd feel guilty if I didn't. You know. But the conference wasn't about guilting you into praying. Prayer is a sign of submission. 
That's what Habakkuk's doing here. Remember all he's been saying to God, all how God's responding to him, Habakkuk is praying. It's a sign of submission. We should learn from Habakkuk that as those who profess to be Christians, our response is to be the same when we come upon difficult and confusing things in our lives and in our world. God, I don't understand it all. And it's okay. Go ahead and complain to God. Habakkuk did, right? Did God smite him? No, he was merciful and said, well, Habakkuk, this is what I'm going to do. You just ain't going to believe it, but here's what I'm going to do. Our response should be that Habakkuk. It's prayer is submitting ourselves to God, saying, God, I'm going to be like Habakkuk. I don't understand all this. I don't understand what's going on right now, but you are sovereign. I trust you. You're in control. Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk confesses he's heard the report about the Lord, but now he stands in awe of the works of God. He's heard it. And he stands in awe of God. Reverent, respectful, worshipful fear of God. It's as if Habakkuk is saying, I heard, but now now I see. His experience with God in chapters 1 and 2 has given him a deep knowledge and understanding of the ways of God. Right? He learns some things about God. Again, this situation has changed Habakkuk. Some of you, like me, have been in situations in your life of deep, deep grief and sorrow and suffering. And if you're a Christian, God has used that to change you, right? You might not like the circumstances, but God has used that to change you and your attitude toward Him, toward your, your love for Him. This situation changed about He's grown in maturity in the faith. He, he's in awe about God. Maybe that's part of our problem as Christians and as the church. We have lost our awe of God. I read a book uh, with Caden uh, Williamson, the pastor uh, Sandy Creek and I get together and we read books and we talk about those books and share life and pray together and talk about what it is to be a pastor and a husband and a daddy and just all that kind of stuff. And um, We read this book called Dangerous Calling. It's one of those books you love to hate. Man, I hated reading that book every week. But when I got done, it was like, man, this is bomb to my soul. It hurts, it cuts deep, but it... It changed. This situation changed to Habakkuk. And that book I read was talking about how as pastors, those who are called to ministry can lose their awe of God. We can all do that, right? We get comfortable. We get content. Or something bad comes in our life and we lose our awe of God. Habakkuk's prayer, if you notice here, it consists of three elements. Easy to remember. Are you ready? Revive, reveal, and remember. Revive, reveal, and remember. He says, in the midst of the years, revive it. Habakkuk uh, had one thought in mind. And that was that God received the glory due him for his work. He says, God, if you've got to do it that way... I want you to do it. You see how Habakkuk's changed? Before it was like, why are you going to do that? But now it's like, 
He's more concerned about the glory of God. If you're going to do that way, I want you to do it that way. Revive your work, God, in the midst of the years. During this time, God, in the midst of the years that are now, and especially in the years that are coming, revive your work. Not my work, not our work, but what? Your work. There's a major difference, right? So we're all worried about our work when we're complaining. Wouldn't Habakkuk? But now he's worried about what? God's going to glorify Himself in what He's going to do. And that's Habakkuk's concern. In the midst of the years, God revive your work. Then he says, in the midst of the years, <coughs> make it known. God, reveal your work. Habakkuk says, I want your glory to be known, God. I, I want to see... I want to see what you can do, God. God's already told him what he's going to do. Do you see the change in Habakkuk? Now he's asking God, revive it, make it known. I want to see you do it, God. Is Habakkuk especially joyful over what's going to happen? No, he's, he's concerned that in God doing that, God does what's right. God never makes a mistake. God's going to glorify himself in that situation. Make it known, God. Re- renew, re- revive, reveal your actions this day so that... If you go back to chapter 2, verse 14, the earth can be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Remember that? Habakkuk's praying that now. Revive in our time. Reveal yourself, God. Revive, reveal, and be merciful. Notice what he says next. <clears throat> be merciful in your wrath against sinners. In wrath, remember mercy. You're thinking, well, okay. God's going to be wrathful. Just remember to show us mercy, God. Remember, he was wanting God to do something, but then God says, here's what I'm going to do, and Habakkuk's like, no. And now what's Habakkuk doing? You're going to show your glory in this wrath, God, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember mercy. Here's what I think Habakkuk's saying without saying it directly. We deserve your punishment, God, but be merciful to us. And there's a lot to learn there, aren't there? We deserve, all of us sitting here today, we deserve the punishment of God. But if you know Jesus, what was it you did? You cried out to God, I deserve death and hell, but God be merciful to me and save me. Habakkuk was praying, God, if you're going to do it this way, bring your purpose to a realization. Let your kingdom come in the way you want it to come. Whatever I may suffer, whatever your people may suffer is of no concern. As long as your work is revived and kept pure, that's all that really matters, God. Boy, Habakkuk's changed a lot, has he? You're like, well, okay, that's Habakkuk. Habakkuk didn't care about himself. All he cared about was God's plan. Do you see that? It's not about us anymore. It's about God. I think this is the attitude that we as the church should have. If we're not concerned for the purity of the church of Jesus Christ, then we have a problem. If we're not concerned about the glory of God and the glory of God being seen in the church, we have a problem. 
What is your main concern in this world? What is your main concern? That's a rhetorical question. Nobody speak out. Just think. There's a lot of things probably running through your mind right now, right? What is your main concern in this world? Is there a concern that the church of Jesus Christ might be impure and might not be glorifying God? Is that a concern of yours? Do you concern yourself that God's glory is not a priority in your life? Do you concern yourself over the possibility that something might come into the church that would cause a stumbling block to someone else? Or are we hung up more on what's going on in the world? And don't throw a hymnal at me. But some of us right now are more concerned about what's going to happen in 2020 than we are the glory of God and His church. Nothing wrong with 2020. Don't say the preacher said we shouldn't be involved. I'm not saying that. As a professing Christian, a primary concern for you and me ought to be the glory of God. A concern for the health and the condition of His church. A concern for the salvation of the lost. And a concern for your own relationship with the Lord Jesus. Some of those things are a concern, but they're way down the list for us, right? Number two. It's a way of making application. Think about the statement at the end of verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. That kind of jumps off the page. In wrath, remember mercy. The wrath and mercy of God. Listen, anybody want to take a guess where those two, the wrath and the mercy of God, meet perfectly? At the cross, right? Why did Jesus suffer and die on the cross? He died to demonstrate, to reveal God's justice against sin. Because He can't allow sinners like us into His holy presence without an atoning sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins. He died to appease God's wrath against our sin. So Jesus died as a display of God's justice. And what was being poured out on Jesus at the cross was what? The wrath of God. He also died as a display of God's love and mercy. Because the wrath did not fall on those who deserved it. But rather the wrath falls on the substitute. His Son, the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, in your wrath, remember mercy. If you're sitting here and you know Jesus today, man, you should be really thinking, I deserved the wrath of God, but Jesus took that in my place. Here's my question for some of you here today. Do you know for sure that you've trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you come to realize that if it were not for Jesus, you fall under the wrath of God? You need to run to the mercy of God. This is a prayer that you must pray. Oh God, in wrath, remember mercy. God, have mercy on me. I come to you because of Jesus. God, forgive me. My question would be, have you prayed that prayer? Have you trusted in Christ? Today, the Bible says, today's the day of salvation. If you've never trusted in Jesus, today is the day. Now, in verses 3 through 15, remember what Habakkuk has just prayed in verse 2. O Lord, 
I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Reveal it. In wrath, remember mercy. In verses 3 through 15, remembering what he's just prayed in verse 2. In verses 3 through 15... Habakkuk is looking back in history and he's thinking about what God has done for his people in the past. That's what's going on here. Habakkuk is bringing that knowledge of God's work in the past. He's bringing it into the present day. In effect, he's saying, God, what you did in the past, do it again. Habakkuk prays, and as he prays, we see him moving from fear to faith. Based on God's character in the past, he's hoping for a repeat of God's past actions. He's praying for God to deliver His people, verse 1 and 2. And then, and, and then from verses 3 through 15, he's, he's, he's talking about the past deliverances of God's people that God has carried out. And he's looking back at history, and he's seeing the faithfulness of God toward His people. Hint, hint. He's looking back and he's seeing the faithfulness of God toward His people. How many of you ever look back on your life and look at the faithfulness of God upon your life as one of His children? Verses 3 through 15. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're going to kind of hit these. Uh, There's a lot here, but I'm going to hit what's essential in verses 3 through 15. Essentially, here's what's being said here. God defeats His enemies and brings salvation to His people. God defeats His enemies and He brings salvation to His people. Verses 3 through 15 break into three sections. Verses 3 through 7, verses 8 through 11, and then verses 12 through 15. 3 through 7, 8 through 11, and 12 through 15. So let's look at verses 3 through 7. Verse 3, God came from... Teman. Teman refers to or means south. S-O-U-T-H, south. That's what it's referring to. God came from Teman, the south, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Mount Paran is an ancient term for the Sinai wilderness. Remember that's where God's people wandered for 40 years in the Sinai wilderness? God came from the south he, he came from the, the, the wilderness of Sinai. And here's what's going on. You've you got to remember, uh, Habakkuk, Old Testament, praying a prayer, and prayers are written in Hebrew poetry-like. So Hebrew poetry can be kind of, you know, that's the only way I know how to put it. You kind of read, you're like, you know. With these references, Teman and Mount Paran, Habakkuk is referring to the Exodus event when God delivered His people from Egypt. And then they went where? Into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years waiting on the promised land. That's what he's remembering. That's what he's recounting. The significance of this statement is this. Are you ready? God comes from an unexpected direction to deliver His people. Wouldn't that be consistent with what Habakkuk is experiencing, right? I had no idea and I don't really like the way you're doing this. But God has changed Habakkuk. Habakkuk's experience. God did the unexpected in order to deal with a sinful 
society of Judah. Look at the second part of verses 3 through 7. God will come in great splendor and glory, and it will be seen everywhere. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. Notice that's coming up again. The earth full of the glory of God. The earth full of His praise. Next verse 4 speaks of when the Red Sea came down on top of the Egyptians and they were destroyed. Habakkuk, lack, uh, he, he likens God's presence to that of a, a thunderstorm with darkness and flashing lightning. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there, uh, excuse me, there He veiled His power. Again, when you read the Old Testament, a lot of it's Hebrew poetry and they, they use all these expressions about God. When the biblical authors refer to God's mighty acts, especially in the book of Exodus, they, they often use images to suggest the fear and the awe of God. That's what Habakkuk does here. He's using this imagery. Verse 5, Habakkuk turns to God's use of plagues and pestilence. The very thing that he had destroyed Egypt with before. Before him went what? Pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Remember, how did we outline this? God defeats his enemies and he does what? Brings salvation to his people. Judgment comes. God delivers his people through that judgment. Verse 6, he stood and he measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. It says that God measured. That means He surveyed the nations and He made them tremble. He done that to Egypt. He does that to every nation who exalts themselves above Him in the Bible. He surveyed the nations and made them tremble even though they were like mountains, strong and permanent and powerful. Again, that's imagery of the nations and how they view themselves. Also, mountains were considered as a part of the foundation of the earth. Their shaking was a sign of God's divine judgment. They scatter when God just looks at them. It says there, it's almost as if God just touches the mountains and they sink low. That's the power of God for His people. See, Habakkuk's talking about our God is a, a powerful God and He can deliver His people through judgment. Trust Him. Then verse 7 he says, I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Um, from what I can tell, cushion and Midian represent Gentile people. They represent the whole world. God's wrath and His power are there for His people. God can deliver His people even from who? The mighty Gentiles who exalt themselves above God. Let's look at the second section, verses 8 through 11. Habakkuk continues with the power of God on behalf of his people. Remember, Habakkuk is glorying in his God. He's looking back at God's past work. He knows what's coming, but he's looking back at what God did in the past... And he's what? He's in awe of that. Verse 8, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? If you go to Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, 
You see the Nile River there where God did what to the Nile River? Turned the Nile River into blood? Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? And then you go to Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. You see the account of the Jordan River. He says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, or your indignation against the sea, the, the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14? God uses His power over the Nile, the Jordan, and the Red Sea to demonstrate His greatness in the book, or excuse me, in, in the Exodus. Was your wrath against that, God? <coughs> then next He says, When you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation, God, were you angry at the waters? Nope, not at all. But rather He came to deliver His people. The chariot of salvation here is a picture of God bringing deliverance to His people. In the Old Testament, if I haven't said this yet, God always delivers His people through judgment. Always. Verse 9. Remember, as I said earlier, the biblical authors in the Old Testament refer to God's mighty acts, particularly in the book of Exodus. They often use images to suggest the fear and awe of God. Notice there, <coughs> Habakkuk's talking about God. He said, you strip the sheath from your bow. Um, if you Google it, you can look it up and you can see that in that time period, they carried a, a bow, but that bow was always what? In a sheath. But what is God saying about, or Habakkuk saying about God? You strip the sheath. God doesn't put His bow in the sheath. He's always got it ready. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, you split the earth with rivers. And we know that bow and arrows are instruments of war. This is God at war. God has His bow. It's always ready. Notice it has many arrows. Whatever the enemy is, God is ready. That's what He's saying here. I've looked back and I've seen every circumstance, everything going on, God has always Ready. God is attentive. This is a tremendous picture of God's defense of His people. Verse 10 and 11. The mountains saw you and they writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep (coughs) gave forth its voice. It, It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. The rivers, the mountains, the seas, sun, moon will be affected by God coming in judgment against sinners and the deliverance of His people. Where did we hear that? In the book of Revelation. The language not only anticipates the Lord coming in Habakkuk's time, but it's also language of the future. It points to the day of the Lord at the end of time. We saw that in the book of Revelation. Now, these are, these are words of comfort here. Especially for Habakkuk because he knows that God is faithful to deliver His people. God's going to judge His people with His other wicked people. Then He's going to judge them. And what's He going to do? He, he will deliver His people. Why? Because God has acted in the past on behalf of His people and we have the same assurance, church. God acted on our behalf in the past to deliver us from our sin and bring us into His family to rescue. God has these mighty acts that He's done and we have the same assurance that what He's done in the past, He'll continue to do. God's people are those 
who believe in Him. The righteous will live. They will survive by what? Faith. Remember, what did he tell Habakkuk? You just need to live by faith, Habakkuk. And so what is Habakkuk doing? How do I, how do I do it? I just look back and see what God's done. Right? That's how we live by faith. We look back at what God's done. We see His power and His might. God's people are those who believe in Him. The righteous will live. They will live. They'll survive by faith. If you have no faith in God, if you have no faith in God's plan of salvation in Jesus, if you have no faith, you are His enemies and His bow is out and He has many arrows to shoot. But if you have simple faith in the eternal God's plan of salvation through Jesus, then He will protect you from the judgment. He will bring you to an eternity forever and ever. Verses 12 through 15, this last section. <clears throat> Habakkuk continues with the description of God as the divine warrior who defeats his enemies and brings salvation to his people. He's going to, that's what these three sections are doing just over and over. Remember, Habakkuk is glorying in the kind of God that he has. There's six declarations of God's power over His enemies here. And I'm just going to walk through these just kind of briefly. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to read them. <clears throat> six declarations of God's power over His enemies. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You, we're going to come back to verse 13, by the way. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. From thigh to neck means completely, thorough defeat. Verse 14, you pierced with, excuse me, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. <clears throat> Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. In all those verses, here's what Habakkuk's saying. Nothing can stop my God. Not even the sea itself. If God wants to march right through the sea, He can do it. You know, it's easy to see by the time you get to the verse 15, Habakkuk is he's pretty well convinced that my God is an awesome God. Habakkuk has moved from fear to faith. His faith is restored in God. Habakkuk, chapter 3, in case you haven't figured it out, is living by faith and not by fear. Whatever happens, God, I'm going to trust you anyhow. That's the lesson for us. Whatever happens, God, and we'll see that more next week. Whatever happens, God, I'm going to trust you anyhow. You're that kind of God. Do you see that? I'm going to trust you. I've seen you work, God. I've seen you be faithful. I've seen your power and your might. You judge, and through that judgment, you deliver your people. Whatever happens, Lord, I'm going to trust you anyhow. <clears throat> You're that kind of God. You, you protected your people thus far. You're not about to get this far and let these Babylonians upset your plan. 
That's kind of what he's saying. God is doing the same thing for His church. He's doing the same thing for us today. God has not called us to be in this world to fulfill His mission, to let His mission fail through us. Isn't that good news? Whatever He's called us to do, He's going to persevere. He's going to, it, it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. And my question for us is, do we want to be a part of that? Whatever happens, Lord, I'm going to trust You anyhow. I do want to go back to verse 13. <clears throat> he says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Notice the reference there. The salvation of your anointed. Your anointed should flash for us. What's another word in the Bible for anointed one. Messiah in the Old Testament. Christ in the New Testament. Do you see that? You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You came out God. To deliver your Messiah. Now why does that matter? Because Jesus... The anointed one at this point in time has not yet been born. But Jesus, what was his ancestry? He was what? Jewish. And what's about to happen to the Jewish people? Jesus even said to the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation comes from the Jews. Here's what I think is going on here. If Jewish history ended at Egypt, but it didn't, right? At the Red Sea. If it ended with the Assyrians coming and taking the northern kingdom and wiping them out, and now coming the Babylonians to wipe out Judah, all the Jewish people are gone, right? Where is the Messiah going to come from? There is no salvation for anybody if the Jewish people are gone, annihilated. Why? Because God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed. And so God had to keep alive a remnant so there would be a history, a line of people in which Jesus would come. Do you see that? God's going to persevere His people because from them is going to come who? The one who's going to redeem all the world. And so eventually the Babylonian Empire would be crushed by another empire. Read the book of Daniel. The Persians come and take them out. And then the Persian kings, anybody remember what he did? He let some Jews go back to the promised land. And they would reestablish Jews in the promised land. Who do you think moved King Darius' heart to cause him to do that? God did. And generations later, Jesus would be born, as Galatians says, in the fullness of time. The anointed one. The Christ would come. And why? So that we could call on Him and be saved. So that we could have eternal life. And not to have to face the wrath of God. See, Habakkuk is looking back and he's seeing how God has delivered His people all the way up until now. He knows in his mind there's an anointed one coming from the people of God. And what does Habakkuk go? 
God's done it until now. And there's nothing that's going to change that. And generations later, Jesus comes. And the great and glorious God orchestrated all of that. And He continues to orchestrate history. And one day, the anointed will come again. And He will come for His people, His church. See, all through the New Testament, God's telling us what? He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And we were be going, God did it before. He'll do it again. Look at verse 13 again. <clears throat> you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the head of the house of wickedness. Who is this leader of the house of wickedness? Well, we could think, well, it's, it's Babylon, and then it's the Persians, and after the Persians, in the book of Daniel, the Greeks come, and then after the Greeks, it's the Romans, and then it's the barbarians who take them out, and you go on and on, and then it's the Nazis. One evil empire after another, but all these evil empires, what? They fall. Who's the leader of the house of wickedness? Satan. Remember? Revelation. He's the one who rises all these up, and God takes them down. And that being the case, then Satan must be the one here that's being crushed. God came out to deliver you and I from Him. God came out to crush the head. How do we know that? Verse 14 tells us. With His own spear, you pierced Him. The spear here is referring to Jesus' death on the cross at the hands of Satan but with his own spear, God did what? He pierced the head of Satan. He crushed him. Through the powerful and mighty resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the third day, the spear turned around as if it had been thrown at Jesus, and God pulls it back and does what? Throws it right at Satan with the resurrection of Jesus and destroys him. He crushes his head. The death of Jesus on the cross was destroyed. has destroyed evil. It's destroyed His kingdom. Praise be to God. With Satan's own spear killing Jesus on the cross, God turned it around on Him and crushed Him. The very thing that God predicted in Genesis chapter 3, you, Satan, will bruise His heel, but He will crush your head. With His own spear, God pierced Satan. And see, that's us, folks. God rescued us. God delivered His people by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. I bet you never thought for once in reading Habakkuk that Jesus was in here, did you? You know how I know He's in here? Because of what i just seen. But I know more so because of this. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Luke 24, verse 27. <coughs> Jesus is talking to two men that He's met on the road to Emmaus. Remember that story? And verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that includes Habakkuk, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. You know what Jesus did when He got to Habakkuk? He says, Right here I am. Right here I am. This is me, Habakkuk. This is me. He's telling these two guys, this is me, even in the book of Habakkuk. So here's what I would say is making application. If you're a child of God, 
God is for you. For that reason, don't be discouraged or troubled. Now I know that's, that's easy for me to say, right? <clears throat> Regardless of what you and I face in life, no matter what it is, God is for us. And in the end, He will deliver us. He may not deliver us from what's going on in our life, but in the end, we are delivered, right? Do what Habakkuk does. He thinks back at God's mighty actions in the past. You and I need to think back. And where do we go? Where do we run when we are hurting and suffering and discouraged and disappointed? Where do we go, church? We run to the cross. Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. That delivers us ultimately in the end from everything. Do what Habakkuk does. If you're depressed this morning, if you're discouraged as a child of God, if you're going through a hard time, think back to what Jesus did at the cross. Now, is that going to get rid of your problems? No. Think back to what Jesus did at the cross. Think to what He did when God raised Jesus from the dead. Think of that mighty victory and don't be discouraged. If God is for us, who can be against us? Second, God is holy. <coughs> and He never changes. Habakkuk's telling us that. God is holy. God never changes. Don't assume that all is well with you if you are not a child of God. Do you remember what God was doing in Habakkuk's time? He was destroying His own people because of what? Somebody tell me. Sin. Listen. If you don't know Jesus, you will not escape. God has never changed. He's still holy. He is not going to change. But here's the good news for you. God saves sinners through His Son, Jesus. And here's what I call you today. If you don't... If you're not trusting in Jesus, believe in Him, repent of your sin, and escape the wrath to come. And here's what I want to tell you. There is no other option. There is no other way. Let's pray.